You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Melfi. Buonasera. Il barone, the Brian, the Brian, the Baron. Well, I don't mind you actually calling me by my name. Brian, also a famous no, God, Italian film. Brian, not, Brian I, I've noticed we've dispensed with any kind of intros. From going, we've gone from the longest intros in the podcasting world to zero intros. So I should, I should really give you a, give a, a little bit of your cycling CV, a little bit of your, your cycling pedigree every night and say that, you know, you're a press officer, former press officer for lots of biggest teams in the world and you're a team manager now you've become a journalist podcaster extraordinaire moving up in the world you are i'm not sure about that brian where are we well daniel we are now in basilicata mm, we're going to settle some scores there's going to be some disciplinary action for a for a mistake we made i'm going to i'm going to share responsibility for this mistake we you build said, me up and then you tear me down no we said we were in molise didn't we but in our defense, in your defense, Brian, we went into Molise, then we came straight back out again. And when we recorded yesterday's episode, we were still in Abruzzo. So apologies to Molise, the region that does not exist. I mean, if it doesn't exist, how can it be offended? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Brian, you were saying. Well, I was saying that we are now most definitely in Basilicata, more specifically in the town of Melfi, which is where the finish was today. It's a bit of a, a drizzle it's a great day. Weather. It's, it's a very, very great day. Couldn't really distinguish the the buildings and the seaside with the sky, all this concrete and yeah, very southern Italian tristesse. It's a great day in keeping Brian with one of the most embarrassing recesses of the Italian culinary landscape because Brian there is a big factory, I believe, very close to Melfi, where they churn out or they make and um, one of the greatest gastronomic atrocities of our time. We've talked about them before on the podcast, Fette Biscottate. It's actually a Barilla, um, Barilla, the big pasta manufacturer. It belongs to them, the factory, I believe. But one of their other brands is a brand very well known in Italy called Mulino Bianco. Uh, Mulino Bianco. And they make these Fette Biscottate. If you've been to Italy, you will have seen Fette Biscottate. We've talked about them, as I said. They're these little pieces of desiccated toast that you get at breakfast in most hotels in Italy and they're pretty goddamn awful aren't they on the day when we brought out a kilometer zero which debunks a lot of Italian culinary myths something that isn't a myth is that fette biscottate are pretty rotten I can see this is a this is something you really care about like you're really all railing yeah you, you are I like it I like that side of you Brian We've had a grey day. It got greyer as the day went on, didn't it? Because we started this morning, it feels like a long time ago, and we were in Abruzzo and it was slightly less grey. We started the day in Vasto. Are you Marini doing the tail Vasto. of the tapa now? No, 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 I'm building the drum roll. I'm getting ready for the tail of the tapa. In fact, without further ado. It's time for the tail of the tapa. Brian. Off you go. Away you go. Well, Daniel, stage three of the 2013 Giro d'Italia from Vasto in Abruzzo to Melfin Basilicata. A long stage again today, but it did not disencourage two riders from the same team to go in a breakaway, basically from the flag. Those two riders were from Corotex Italia, and it was Alexander Konichev, son of former pro. And full-time full Giro stage winner. Yeah, also and winner of the points classification and the inter-giro classification in very much sort of a stage type of a rider and the silver bullet they called him part of sort of an enclave of russians living up near lago di garda including andres mill who's had more passports than he's more had more nationalities than you've had bottles of romane conte it's probably the same (laughs) anyways so they went the gap uh, went all the way up to seven minutes until it started to dwindle because this was a stage for very specific finisseurs. So the teams of them, as I think mentioned in the last part of the time of the podcast yesterday, they wanted to take advantage because there was a very good option for a stage win. The interesting part of the of the parkour today was that you had sort of um, a, a section before the real final of two successive climbs. 
Um, the Vallico dei Laghi Monticchio, it's just 6.3 kilometers at 6.4%, and the Vallico La Croce. And things got hot and heavy at that point, even if it was, even if it did start to rain. Trick and Jaco Alula were taking the front as the peloton hit the climb, and already quite quickly, a, sort of a dozen or so riders were losing contact, including Mark Cavendish, Magnus Court, trying to get back with the help of Bittiol, didn't really work. And yesterday's winner, Jonathan Milan. By the time they were done with these two climbs, where actually Thibaut Pino took both of the, for the points for the Mount Climbers jersey, it was a fairly half peloton at that point. And an interesting thing was just as they were about to pass the second climb, the Valicula Croce, Mas Peterson lost contact and were fighting quite fiercely together with his teammates to come back and it was a difficult descent and it must have been a difficult one for him to come back on because there were actually several crashes amongst those were Peter Seri and Joe Dombrowski Mess Wurtz uh, Devin, did Devonance come down? someone on the face told me Devonance came down I didn't see that Okay. Uh, and Mess Wurtz of Israel Premier Tech crashed and uh, Raul Meda fell in the same crash he made it back up again there was an intermediate sprint that was won uh, by Remco Evenhol ahead of Roglic. He sort of roglified Roglic for that one. Anyways, by the time Mats Peterson got back to uh, this very reduced, relatively reduced group of, I would say, around 50 riders, Trek took the front again, together with Jake Alula, the Italian champion, Filippo Sanna, was very, very impressive. Man of the match? He was definitely the, the MVP for that team, but also for anyone who had hopes of this finishing in a, in a reduced bunch sprint. So, with three Ks to go, there was a black screen at the Sala Stampa. There, I'm sure the viewers at home experienced the same thing, but we got back on with the signal with the last kilometer to go. And it looked like a picture-perfect delivery of Mats Peterson, but he missed the timing. Michael Matthews was able to edge him out, not on a finish line, but pretty much. And Caden Groves took third on a... He, if Mats Peterson had it, not the best of all timings, Caden Groves didn't either, because him and his teammate Oldani were, were sp sprinting almost next to each other. Yeah, so a huge win for Michael Matthews, eight years after he won his first Giro State and almost 300 days since the last time he won, which was stage 14 of the last year's Tour de France. So a, a big relief for him, a big relief for the team, obviously with all the work they put in. Huge disappointment for Mas Peterson. I spoke to one of our colleagues from Eurosport, Anders Milke, brilliant Danish journalist, and said he didn't even want to talk to anyone, he just rode straight past. So frustrating day for him. On the GC, no changes. Remco Evenepoel still leading the race. Uh, he took those seconds, but Roglic was right on his wheel, so it's minuscule differences. The mountain jersey is now, the climber's jersey is now Thibaut Pinot's. Jonathan Milan is Thibaut Pino. We all love him, don't we? And Jonathan Milan uh, is still in the points jersey. Excellent, Brian. Excellent. Brian, just talking about the general classification, we should also, we, we said where we were geographically in Italy. Let's get more specific and say whose hotel we are currently sitting outside, sort of under an awning while the rain pitter patters down in the courtyard. Yeah, and actually on that, it hasn't. Um, that doesn't mean that a lot of locals aren't here because this is the hotel of the pink jersey and I, I'm like basically I'm, I'm getting a bit hungry because I'm looking straight into their restaurant food truck where I see a probably a pretty significant meal being prepared it's next to EF Education's food or kitchen truck and next to that one is Bo Hansgrove and this is a this is a pretty big hotel I know, I know we've got a loyal listener at EF who is part of the kitchen team I don't know whether it's a team or just one chef but I believe um, EF Chef is a very loyal listener. That could come in handy at some point. Brian, you've been following Remco's press conferences every day. Any f has he been sort of um, quizzed about his culinary taste yet? There's a lot of talk about food in the podcast I know today and there has been over the last couple of days, partly because we've had a kilometer zero about food out today. But has he been, the Italians love a bit of that chat, as we know. Um, have they got into his culinary taste? No, but they have started to get on to the questions the sort of yeah I would say it's probably not even the secondary secondary questions about how much he loves Italy and how good it feels to be in ping and all that's that's totally fair do you enjoy the films of Monica Bellucci would you like a, a limoncello after your press conference Remco that kind of thing yeah more or less more or less no they haven't gotten to that yet but should he retain his pink jersey or lose it later on and get it back again those questions will definitely arise 
But on that press conference um, element of Rim Kermitpool, I once again today, he, he really impressed me. He, it's the way he sort of naturally actually thinks about the questions before he answers them. And he's not sort of trying to, not trying to score cheap points, but he's also actually not trying to just get out of difficult questions. I'm, I'm actually very impressed by that. So good, good on him because, well, it actually leads me into the next thing we should talk about is how does he feel about keeping it? Because that question came up yesterday and it did a bit again today. We will talk about that later in the episode. Brian, it sounds like you're ready to go over and shower Remco with those rose petals we talked about yesterday. It and no cheering though, in the press box. It mate. sounds as though you've come full, well not come full circle, you have very much changed camps. Um, you were not a, necessarily a Remco fan a few months ago, but um, he's winning you over. Brian, we mentioned, well, of course we mentioned who won the stage. Michael Matthews, Jaco Alula. His teammates were, as you would expect, pretty jubilant as they came over the line. I spoke to one of them, Eddie Dunbar. We're going to hear from him now. And after that, we are going to hear from someone who had a slightly more difficult day, Sepp Kuss, uh, Primoz Roglic's mountain domestic. And we saw him at one point, didn't we? fiddling with his having a bit of a, a sort of thumb wrestle with his rear derailleur and coming off second best and consequently getting dropped as well so we're going to hear from Sepp Kuss after Eddie Dunbar here they both are well Eddie the team did so much work today with Trek as well but it must be so satisfying to see it well come to fruition yeah I think um, from the start this was a stage that suited Blink um, I think everyone in the peloton knew we were going to ride today. The lads rode incredible today. Um, super strong, good position on the final climb, and Bling finished it off, so fair play to him. Great. Uh, three days in and already a stage win for the team, so just massive. We were quite surprised by how small the group was when it came into the finish. I don't know, it was 40 riders or so, but was that kind of what you're aiming at, a group of more or less that size? We expected Trek to help as well. Obviously, Mads is very fast. Um, himself and Bling, obviously, battled it out there so um, I think they had the same intention as us and it worked it worked both ways um, I think we rode an incredible place, play, uh, pace on the climb and uh, I think that shows the condition the team is in and how good Bling is going to get over climbs like that so uh, yeah that was always the plan uh, I didn't realise that the group was that small being honest uh, I'm not sure if they were crash in the final but uh, yeah as I said we stayed out of trouble got the win so it's positive yeah and when we come down to this part of Italy we always talk about the greasy roads especially when it's wet I mean how were the conditions out there for the most part fine and then obviously you can see here looking at the surface it is quite slippery and uh, yeah I think we managed it well we stayed out of trouble and yeah you just have to be cautious on days like this as I said you're only three days in and um, you don't want your Giro to end on day three you know and just lastly, Eddie, three days into your first Grand Tour for a long time, too long. Um, how have those first three days, well, obviously a great day today, but how's it been to be back? Yeah, good. Four years in the waiting. It's nice to be back and it was nice to have this as a target um, this year. Obviously didn't go all smooth with breaking my hand, but um, yeah, it's so far so good. And um, as I said, if we can keep performing like that, it should be a great three weeks. You got the legs for tomorrow? Chance for you tomorrow? Maybe, yeah. As I said, I feel good in the climb today. Um, but as I said, I think there's going to be a couple of GC guys wanting to get a win tomorrow. Because I think this a lot of stages coming up for breakaways and stuff, so there's not many hilltop finishes where GC guys can go for the win. So, yeah, it's going to be aggressive tomorrow. It's a tough little day, so see how it goes. Well, Seb, we saw you had a problem there in the finale. Just tell us what happened. No, my shifting stopped working, and... Uh, I, I tried everything, changed the batteries, everything, but it didn't change the batteries. Yeah, yeah, but uh, still didn't work, so had to do a bike change, and then, uh, yeah, I, I thought I was close to catching the, the front group again, but maybe took too many risks on the downhills and slid out a little bit, so. I can see you've hurt your hand there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, no other injuries, nothing to be worried about. Nothing, nothing too bad. Luckily, the roads were slick. <laughs> and... Well, Seb, we know all about your team's tumultuous build-up to this race. Um, have, have things started to settle down, do you think, in the team the last couple of days? Yeah, for instance, Tom has been able to catch up on the sleep he missed uh, arriving uh, in the middle of the night before the first day. And, um, of course, there was a lot of bad luck, but it already seems like a while ago, and we've always been super focused on just controlling what, what we can. And, yeah, when, when all the bad luck happens, that's just how it is sometimes. <laughs> and second sort out on GC probably tomorrow. Um, how's Primoz looking to you? Yeah, he looks really good, really uh, really calm. And yeah, yeah, he's feeling good. Even even in the first TT, he's, he's uh, 
feeling good, and uh, yeah, I think tomorrow's a day that could suit him really well. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Science in Sport has supported the Cycling Podcast since the 2016 Giro d'Italia, and we are very grateful to them for their long-term support of the podcast. They're keeping us on the road, uh, keeping us fueled up, so to speak. And at the Giro d'Italia, one of the best things about being on the road is the food available. The minimum quality bar in Italy is, I would suggest, much higher than it is in France and in Spain. I'm not saying you can't get good meals there. You certainly can. But there's something about Italy where the reliability that you'll get a good meal is higher. Now, the teams don't necessarily have to worry night after night whether they're going to get a good meal because they have chefs with them. But I asked Ben Swift of Ineos Grenadiers, who are supported by Science in Sport and supplied by them as well, what are his favourite pizza and pasta dishes? We're really lucky that we've got some high-quality chefs in our team. So I think going to any race for us, it's it's a good treat. I mean... I like home cooking and stuff like that. I like the the cooking that my partner makes, but you know, I'm by no means a uh, a Michelin star chef. I'll uh, I cook pretty basic at home. So when you come on a race in training camps and having the quality that our chefs make, it's it makes it really it really nice. Obviously, uh, we don't do many races without the chef anymore. But when when we didn't have the chefs, go always going to an Italian race was you knew that you'd get good quality food in terms of the favorite pasta dish actually we used to have in one of my favorite restaurants that we used to go to it was tagliatelle al salmon that was really nice that was uh and favorite pizza topping just a good old favorite prosciutto and fungi well brian we heard before the little interlude there little commercial interlude from well sepkus was the second voice we heard he was in good spirits as usual but he was bleeding he was bleeding from his hands from his fingers i guess a result of that altercation with the rear derailleur and he also had a rather well he didn't, i don't think there was any skin um, that had been scraped off but he did have a hole in his skin shorts where he'd fallen today I expected as I alluded to it there when I spoke to Eddie Dunbar I expected the conditions to be more tricky and there to be more crashes I was standing next to Chiro at the finish line and he talks about the bend with 800 meters to go but it didn't look as though they came into that bend with that much speed or enough speed for it to be as treacherous as maybe some people feared I think that's also a question of well it hinges on the fact that it, it was a fairly reduced peloton where you know the, the big difference between today and yesterday was that there was a very uh, clear division of labor Trek Sigafredo took full advance full um, control of that finish and they did you know, pretty much the perfect lead out it was and, and then it was a, a sprint to the line obviously so that that changes the dynamics of a finish like that and all the GC guys apart from Roglic didn't really participate in the sprint Brian, I also said in the interview with Eddie Dunbar that I thought the group was about 40 strong. Is that allowable to go? I think I was 17 out. I think it was 57. Is that is that forgivable? Um, you know, when we're doing sort of finish line interviews or will I end up in corrections in the corrections penitentiary like you this evening? Yeah, the short answer to that rather complicated question is yes. I'm not sure now whether I'm in trouble or not. Brian, um, we've talked, as always, about the end of today's stage. Let's go back to the start of our day, or closer to the start of our day anyway, around about lunchtime, as always. I checked in with our good friend, Lionel Burney. It's past 11. Time for my cappuccino break. La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Burney. Dopo le 11. Pronto. Pronto. Ciao Daniele, è bello, è bello essere qui oggi per parlare del Giro oh d'Italia. God. Brilliant, the accent was pretty good as well, Lionel. <laughs> You've been, um, it's a few years now since we premiered Lionel Learns Italian, but I can see you scurried off. Oh, keeping it on the download. Pet, pet project over the last five years. Even There might even have been a bit of a Basilicata accent in there, you know. There was definitely a hand gesture. Okay, wonderful. You got your Cornetto there, Lionel. <laughs> it is a bank holiday Monday here in the UK, but I'm actually immersed in the Meta Giro, which I've discovered today, a sort of 3D virtual Giro website, right? And 
and you're a little avatar in a in a tight pink t-shirt and tight black sort of pedal pusher shorts wandering around looking at the gc looking at the the stage profile if you can find the meta Giro on the Giro uh, website i recommend all listeners get in there it's like sims you know do you know the computer game sims that kind of virtual yes. reality world lemmings was that a bit like lemmings L- lemmings slightly different daniel but uh, yeah that that kind of idea it's been fun It's been more amusing, perhaps, than today's uh, stage, which is still a little way to run. As we speak, the the Ciclomino duo are up the road. Uh, We'll see how that pans out. But uh, it feels like the Giro's underway, doesn't it? Because the first appearance of Chiro, Chiro Scognomilio, in uh, your stage two episode. Yes, he was in excellent form yesterday. Came up with some absolute gems um, as regards Remco. He's very much on Remco watch. I saw Vincenzo Nibali this morning. He was staying in our hotel uh, last night. He was looking slightly forlorn in the in the car park, sort of looking high and low for Chiro, who was actually in the same hotel. Um, but Chiro is sort of snubbing Nibali now. He's almost, you know, he walks past him until they don't even know each other. 15 years of living in Nibali's pocket, and now that's it. You're, you're, you know, basically cut out, cut out. There's a new Italian hero in town, Jonathan Milan, of course, the stage winner yesterday. Um, I spoke to him earlier about Tiramisu. Maybe we'll hear about that later, Lionel, because, of course, as mentioned in yesterday's pod, he's from the his birthplace is also allegedly, purportedly, the birthplace of Tiramisu. Anyway, go on, Lionel. Well, he's uh, from Friuli, isn't he? I think I heard you say. Yes, yeah. from Tom well, Metzo, yeah. a bit of a football and Udinese uh, connection here. Our very good friend of the podcast, Alessio Punzi, who you may remember lent us his uh, apartment in San Remo for Milan San Remo a couple of months ago. He pointed out that there's another famous sporting baron, Il Barone, Franco Calcio, a fullback who played for Juventus and Udinese and Italy, part of the 1982 World Cup winning squad. And on the food subject, Daniel, I haven't got round to your kilometre zero yet on the food myth, but uh, just uh, just reading the episode text is whetting my appetite for that. I'm going to listen to that tomorrow morning and i will report back with interest and Lionel, if we figure out how to use youtube the full hour-long interview with alberto grandi the italian food heretic with subtitles will be going live at some point in the next few hours if we figure out youtube because it's a while since we've used it excellent uh well that's part of our kilometer zero series of course the next few episodes will be available to friends of the podcast sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com while i'm just plugging a couple of things rose manley and lizzie banks recorded an emergency episode of arrive on the vuelta femenina uh, a real dramatic controversial race uh, they've got it all covered that is on the feed now and a couple of other things dan we talked uh, a couple of days ago now about this stage 20 time trial, Monte Lusari, with the, uh, the very steep finish. Uh, a listener, Eric Geyer, pointed out, and jogged my memory because I do remember this, 2008, the Plan de Corones time trial, which was a very, very steep, gravelly road, wasn't it? And I looked up on YouTube some footage of that stage, and lo and behold... Eric is correct. He remembers correctly that the mechanics were on motorbikes carrying bikes up with them. So it can be done. So there's hope there. The Monte Lucari, we talked about that. With, we talked about it with Alessandro Marchi, didn't we, who's from that neck of the woods. From the same, well, same place as Jonathan Milan as well. They live in the same village, actually. And just before I wrap up, we uh, mentioned Stacey Snyder's cups and mugs and gelato bowls sold out in, well, I was going to say record time, but they always sell out in minutes. Uh, so hot in demand they are. If you remember, when we first started collaborating with Stacey back in 2019, one of the first recipients of the uh, money that we donate to good causes was the West Lothian Cycle Circuit in Linlithgow, which is kind of between Edinburgh and Glasgow, much nearer to Edinburgh, to be fair. They're having their grand opening on May the 27th. The cycle circuit is already in use. It will be officially opened on May the 27th. If you want to find out more about that and you're up in that neck of the woods, westlothiancyclecircuit.org is the website. Congratulations to Matt Ball and the whole team up there. A really fantastic project finally come to fruition after years of very hard, dedicated work and the Cycling Podcast are delighted to have played a tiny part in that success. Well, I know. Ci sentiamo domani e se mi vuoi chiamare nel frattempo sparare due cazzate. Sì, sì. Oh. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Well done, Lionel. Dieci <laughs> lode, 10 full marks. Full marks for your Italian today. Well done. Thank you. See you tomorrow.
Well, Brian, you heard me refer there to the little chat I'd also had with Jonathan Milan, yesterday's stage winner. And, well, we alluded to it yesterday, didn't we, that he is born in Tolmezzo, possibly the birthplace of Tiramisu. I actually asked him this morning whether that is indeed the case, whether we can finally put this debate to bed once and for all Maybe we should on the Cycling <laughs> Podcast and never mention it again. Here's what he said. I know. I have My opinion is just that tiramisu is super good and he's Italian, so this is it. Very, yeah. Very diplomatic. Brian, finally we can talk about cycling and not tiramisu. I'm not here for it. Not food. Both, Michael Matthews. Okay, Michael Matthews, uh, it, was, it was a close-fought sprint between him and Maz Pedersen, but We've been talking, hadn't we, about the fact that Mads Pedersen has developed this characteristic that he has become very good at announcing an objective or making it pretty clear that he's going for a stage, putting his team to work and hitting the target. Michael Matthews' wins over the past three or four years have tended to come when we've not been expecting him to win. He hasn't necessarily had as much success on the days. I remember of Welter a couple of years ago, there were multiple stages where the team worked all day and I don't think he won a single stage. So today was also, well, it was a triumph for Jacob for that reason, wasn't it? Yeah, and he was quite clear about that in the press conference. Uh, he said he came into today with a very relaxed mindset. He said earlier, not just in his career, but in general, when he has a big target, he sometimes overthinks it. <clears throat> and I've definitely seen that happen. I've worked with him for a number of years. And he he sometimes, I think, struggles to deal with the pressure because, you know, there's only that many types of stages that he can win. It's pretty fierce competition for those types of arrivals. And you now with riders like, same as Peterson, potentially even Roglic, riders of that type. And it is, it, those are hard stages mm -hmm. for him to win. But he said he actually came into them with the mindset today of just having fun. Mm. Didn't even think much about how he would interpret the finish he just tried to said it was almost like riding a, a sprint to the town sign in a in a group between a group of friends and you if that was the case that was a very successful recipe but the relief for him and the team was immense he has suffered and he's not the only one but there is a category of riders those sort of puncher what they call in italian scatista type riders who have suffered a lot at the hands of the likes of Primoz Roglic. These GC riders with broader repertoires who are very explosive. Pogacar beat Matthews in the stage of the Tour de France last year, didn't he? And he has not had as many wins as maybe we might have expected at one point in his career, mainly or at least partly for that reason. Yeah, yes, yes that type of rider you sometimes think, how can he not have won Milan San Remo? Hmm. But coming back to what he said at the press conference today, it's those stages or classics that he, that world championships for that matter, that he charges really hard is often the ones that he misses. And he is a phenomenal rider. I remember one year at Amstel, he was the only one who could follow Philippe Gilbert's wheel on the Cowberg, which is you know, in, in itself an extraordinary performance. But he, you know, he became world champion quite early uh, as an under 23, went to Rabobank and there's been a highs and lows for him even this year you know he had covid uh, he crashed he was you know crashed actually pretty pretty badly less than a month ago so he um he's bounced back and it looks like he's he is actually enjoying this this part of his career especially now you see, he said he's been at points where he thought about you know packing it in but now i'm, I'm i think this is i wouldn't be surprised if he wins another stage here and, and i think if if this will if anything, this would give him more motivation to continue throughout this season. I think the World Championships will suit him and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll bring him to the Tour as well. He's turned a bit of a corner in the last year or so. I believe he's made some quite significant changes to his position on the bike. He's a rider who suffers quite a lot with back issues or has done in the past. He sits a long way forward on his bike to try and alleviate some of those. has a few uh, sort of custom parts made by Jaco Alula's suppliers to, again, try and alleviate some of those back issues and he works with a guy down in Germany called Lloyd Thomas um, of Cycle Fit Europe who's got him well he's managed to get him into a, an aerodynamic a more aerodynamic position where he's saving more energy in the bunch and you're seeing that as well in the finishes and they will be absolutely thrilled with that today because they haven't got a big GC leader 
here, your old team, have they? Um, Jacob Alula, usually they come with Simon Yates, or they have done it in the past. But I, I mean, I think they have GC ambitions here with Eddie Dunbar, but I think they're downplaying them quite mm. specifically. But he did say as well, Matthews, didn't he, in his press conference, that the team generally on the whole was in fantastic form. Brian. We saw that today. Yeah, we did. Brian, we said we're in Remco's hotel. We're also in EF Education's hotel. I'm going to start whispering now because I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, were you slightly disappointed that Magnus Court wasn't there in the shakeup and then he got dropped? Or um, yeah, yeah, very. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he would be himself. He came into this race uh, probably a little bit under-raced. Uh, he did Romandy but was, wasn't really near any stage victories or anything there but he said that he would eventually ride himself into a form that's good enough to to hunt that stage and equally you know the other fast Dane here Mess Peterson he's here to, to try and do the triple you know they both like that one stage in the in the third grand tour which is the Giro so yeah and I think you know Mess Peterson got dropped as well and there's a reason why with Magnus Court that Bittiol stayed with him because they, they, they thought he, he could have come back, you know, but it was, as we saw, it was a very technical descent. And to come back on that descent, you either have to be extremely good at, at doing it or take risks. So uh, I think for Ms. Peterson, he did both. He's a good descender, he took risks. I don't think Magnus Court wanted to take those risks. Brian, we're going to start talking about GC now. We're going to move on. Before we do, and in case I forget... We've been talking a lot about food, fette biscottate, so on. Did you see the moment, I think it was in early in today's stage, where Simone Velasco of Astana put a boiled egg in Remco yeah. in Nepal's back pocket? Did yeah. he mention that in the press conference? Yeah, because we all wanted to know what that was all about. And they asked Remco, and he said he had no idea what, what that was supposed to, to um, signify. So, and he, he was just making sure that it, wasn't, uh, that it was boiled egg. You know, because if once you stick your hands into an unboiled egg, all kinds of things. I, of course, famously famously don't eat eggs or trust people who eat eggs. So watch your step, Brian. Well, I had uh, two fried eggs this morning. I think you should just do a list of what what, <laughs> what you eat because I, I know a lot of things you don't eat. Brian, I said we're going to move on to the GC now. Let's do that, shall we? With today's Chiacchierata del Giorno, and it is with the Ineos Grenadiers head honcho, Rod Ellingworth. La chiacchierata del giorno. The team wag of the day. Well, Rod, a good start for you guys on Saturday. And then there was a small setback yesterday with Teo losing a little bit of time. He wasn't the only one to lose 19 seconds, I think he lost. Well, how much of a setback was that, first of all? I think for him, it's any, any time loss is a setback, isn't it? So, he, you know, he was pretty disappointed last night. G was OK. He got through just OK. But, you know, I think the guys um, had a good, strong talk to each other. Forthright exchange of opinions, you mean? Well, no, you know, we encourage that. Just be open, just be really honest. What could we do better? Obviously, we, you know, you look at how they raced in the final and they all know they could have been... Uh, in a different position you know and that's where they wanted to be so it's about like, what do you need to do to, to improve so uh, hopefully we'll see that difference on the road today but they're all in good nick they've got a great spirit amongst them so, yeah I think that hopefully will carry them through quite a long way but G, you know G's good he, he's had loads of problems hasn't he this year early early on but he's He's, he's so bloody strong in his head. So I think we'll see a good G come that final week, hopefully. And Rod, talk to me a bit about Teo's start of the season, which has been spectacular, really. But <laughs> yeah. the thing that stood out to me, I remember at the end of last season, he talked, about, he talked to me about what he was going to do in the winter and he was going to keep things very low-key. And it was all about kind of, well, getting away from the stresses and strains of racing, but really sort of building up slowly and having no setbacks. He's been lucky not to have setbacks, I don't think. Anyway, no big ones. And it, I guess it just shows the value of that, having a really good winter. That's what it seems like from the outside. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of people have obviously talked, you know, post the Giro that he won. And I think, you know, for a couple of years, um, Teo's been trying to prove people wrong in, in some of the stuff that's said. And you know, it's been a tough couple of years for him, really, because he, he's never really got that rhythm and that consistency needed. But he's he, he did have it early last year. Then he got COVID, you know, and got sick again, and all, all you know, like like millions of others. But this year, you know, he certainly put it together. Uh, we've got a new little team around him within the team, 
who are looking after him. So a new coach? Yeah, new, new coach, and Zach Dempster's his uh, sports director. You know, we've, we've sort of put a new little system together in that sense with um, to support the riders. Uh, I think he's enjoying that. And it's all about putting the right characters together, and, and he's progressed. So, yeah, he. I think you're right in terms of consistency, and he's gone into every race you know at a good level so he's been a- able to race and no setback so and he, he's he's like a different person to be honest when he's like that it's like anything they want it so bad don't they they're so desperate to mm. perform that um it, it it changes their their how they are every day <laughs> they wake up in a good mood when they're going well so it's good and for both of them rod i guess the serious stuff starts tomorrow lago lacino mm. sum up the sort of general approach that you guys are going to take into this first sort of half of the race up to the sort of grand sasso anyway the first summit <laughs> finish we wanted to come in pretty good in that time trial which they did you know i think they all showed that they've got that good consistency uh and then it's just literally just maintaining where you are isn't it you know i I, you know, I don't think them climbs um, like tomorrow for the main GC guys will make a big difference, but but it'll filter out those who haven't got the legs or those who are really suffering with something. But you'd expect the core sort of six to eight riders to all be in and amongst each other in the next few days. So I think it's just staying out of trouble. Take your opportunities when you can. But everybody knows it's the, at the end of the day, the time trials are going to make a big difference. I mean, obviously, that final time trial, if it's in or not, makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, it's pretty crazy that we don't know what the situation is in that respect. It's the Giro. Yeah, it's the Giro, but still, you know, it's a World Tour race. There's a lot of investment in it, and we don't know if it's in on or not is a bit crazy. But, yeah, so the time trials are going to play a big part, and then it's always that final week, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you think about us last year, we were leading that race until penultimate day, and... We lost, so you can never take any day for granted here. And just finally, Rod, we saw an awesome performance from Remco at the weekend. But how much awe is the among the guys for some of his rides in particular this year? And just generally, how much sort of maybe a bit of anxiety there is that, that a lot of people think that you know when he is kind of unleashed in this Giro, he may just obliterate everyone. Do you, do you get that sense in the peloton among the guys that they sort of fear that as well? No, I don't, no, nobody's really saying that. Not not amongst the guys here, anyway. No, nobody's sort of. I think they all respect, you know, Remco's a world class bike rider, isn't he? And he's he's proving that day in day out. To be honest, you know, that time trial was was phenomenal. You know, um, excellent time trial. Everybody knows he's slippery as hell, isn't he? You know, um, he's got fast skin. The Belgians yeah, said yeah, in the uh, newspaper. He, um, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like any, none of them are unbeatable, are they? You know, that you, you you can. You can beat them at the right moments, I think, um, and that's what the guys have got, got to look for them gaps, you know. And, and you know, Remco's made mistakes before, Primoz has made mistakes, mistakes before. So I think, you know, you just got to wait for them gaps. And one, one thing you know with um, with both our guys, they've they've had lots of experience, lots of they they know when them gaps are. Geraint feels them gaps really well. A couple of really interesting takeaways there from my little chat, particularly with regard to Theo Gegenhart how he seems much more relaxed this year, performing very well on the bike. I noticed that he, was, he looked as though he was climbing. Well, we would expect him to be at the front on a day like today. And he looked like he was straining at the leash today. And um, he looked very good indeed. And then also it was interesting to hear Rod's sort of view from inside the team bus about Remco Avonapool and the, whether he has an aura at the moment in the peloton, whether there's a feeling that he's ready for liftoff and that he's ready to obliterate the competition. And you wouldn't expect Rod to say, yes, we're all sort of there, you know, terrified of what Remco's going to do. But that was interesting, I thought. They can't control what Remco does. And, and he's, when, he, when, when he's on form, as we saw, you know, peak form, as we saw on the World Test, we saw this year and in Liège, you, he's unbeatable, basically. But the question is, is he unbeatable in the third week? I'm not saying that the Walter win last year was easy, but I think the competition here is harder on a sort of broader scheme. So, and I think that the mind frame of, of a team like Ineos could never be, uh, we'll, we'll just race for second or third. They, they'll have to see if they can find any way of... They're looking good, aren't they? Yeah, they have such a strong team here. And we also saw that when they, they were actually the reason why Mets Peterson got dropped. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lance Plus is just flying at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how strong is he when he's at his best mm-hmm. form? And Sivakov as well. And they have a plus Aronsman. What? Plus Aronsman. Plus Aronsman. Yeah, and I think they're saving him a little bit mm-hmm. for the for the latter part of the race. Yeah, so very very impressive. And with with a team like that, it's Bramati saying hello, the sports director of Remco Evenepoel. And when they have a team like that, Ineos, they they need to also use it in a smart way. And they they will they will have to let. 
Remco's teamwork, their asses off for the next couple of weeks to somehow see if they can find it, you know, sink in the armor. Do you think Teo is a contender to win this Giro? For anyone who's won the Giro before, I think it's disrespectful to say that he's not. Uh, he rode a fantastic time trial. We saw how well he was riding in the Tour of the Alps, winning it and just really being in, yeah, in, in the perfect shape before the Giro. And I think he's mentally, he seems more mature now, which is obvious. This is now actually almost three years ago. It was a later in the year Giro because of the, the pandemic. He's not been very um, cagey about the, his preparation. And when you saw uh, the, the numbers from his um, altitude training camp, I mean, was, he was riding ridiculously hard training f for this specific race. And it's also, um, <coughs> not to put pressure on him, I'm sure he does that himself, but it is also crunch time for him. You know, if you, if you win a Grand Tour, regardless of the circumstances. Well, Rod alluded to it, didn't he, there? But, yeah. Um, you know, there is, well, I think Teo's felt the weight of expectation anyway since um, 2020. Yeah, and that, that could also be the reason why he, you know, he's found it a little bit hard also to uh, to live up to that. But you, you couldn't really fault him for, you know, at a young age winning and then, then figuring out what to do after that. But his preparation's been perfect. He's He looks really sen, as, as, he's, as he's always done, I suppose. But I think he's, I think he's ready. I think he's... He's definitely a candidate for the podium, without had a, a doubt. I had a little in, informal chat with him this morning just about the seconds he conceded yesterday, um, which, again, Rod mentioned there, 19 seconds that he conceded. And I sort of suggested to him that it wasn't, you know, it was no big drama that 19 seconds in the three-week race is not too much to worry about. But Taylor was still quite, he was still quite um, upset that that had happened yesterday. It's actually interesting how, how it works with those things in, in the Grand Tour. After Roglic came to the fall, it's actually been sort of the, how they chase seconds. And it was actually, yeah, Ineos started that with, with also with Garen Thomas in, in, in Grand Tours. But they asked Remco today, why did you go for those bonus seconds? You know, you, you're so strong, you're, you, you're comfortably in the pink jersey, you're potentially also interested in giving it away. He said, well, I didn't, I didn't go all in on that time trial to lose some of that advantage just, you know, in a sprint where it doesn't take much out of me to do it. And then when he, when he felt uh, Jumbo Visma coming behind him with, with Ruggles, he said, well, then, of course, I'm going to go for that sprint. You know? And I think that's a, that's a really smart move. And, you know, that's also coming back to what uh, uh, Gegenhardt said. When you put that much effort into a time trial and you really you prepared so hard to, to be competitive that way and you do a good time, losing, you know, losing that advantage for, you know, for something annoying like that uh, you know, uh, being set back by the crash uh, yesterday. Of course, it's it's uh, it's troublesome and it's also something that annoys him. Teo, I know, is not a fan, not necessarily a fan of fette biscottate. He, but he loves crostata for breakfast. Oh, jam tart. I don't. You see, I don't. But um, Teo often he joshes with our friends from the Italian podcast Gironimo about why he, his passion for crostata. La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage. Yesterday's dinner. Brian, I'm going to pass to you in a second, but before I do, let's have a little bit more music, shall we? Well, Brian, that was a little bit of a song by Massimo Varini, an uh, Italian songwriter, and it's called Lacino, and it's an ode to where we're going tomorrow. Um, unfortunately, acoustic. I was expecting some very colourful, florid lyrics. When I listened to it, I was a little bit disappointed. No offence, uh, Massimo. But, Brian, it is over to you. Tell us about well, tell us about yesterday's... Was there anything to say about yesterday's dinner? Do we, do yeah. we want to dwell on yesterday's dinner? Go on, then. Yeah, I want to dwell on the fact that Silvio Martinelli, buonasera... Uh, so, we ate at the hotel where the Digitalia um, direction, you know, the, the, the big buses were eating. Nibali was there, quite a few journalists. We had a hectic day. We had, a bit of a, you had some technological challenges and, and you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. But we, we came down for dinner. I ordered uh, something quite, you know, straightforward. 
you ordered a pasta and when the pasta came out the look on your face i mean it would have it would have been the same if like, like remco had punctured and lost 50 seconds so then the waiter was quiet with, he with felt three really point, guilty with 3.0001 kilometers to go to the finish yeah and um so they actually brought out another huge plate of pasta for you and yeah before i'd finished my salad all of it was gone brian I would rather talk about tomorrow's stage. Before we do, uh, it's an in, it's a, this is a special one for me, Lago Lacino, because Lago Lacino for me is like, you remember the aquarium in Baz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Ju- his rendition of Romeo and Juliet in the 90s. It's the first, I think it's the first scene of the film. It was the moment where Romeo and Juliet fall in love. I really fell in love with the Giro d'Italia at, well, while watching the Lago Lacino stage in 1998. This was the start of this great duel between Pavel Tonkov and Marco Pantani. I harp on about 25 years since then. The stage was actually won by Alex Zula, who had the pink jersey for a long time in that Giro and eventually lost it in the Dolomites. But um, yeah, it always has a special mystique for me, this finish, for that reason. Well, I hope it'll uh, live up to your expectations. So on the stage tomorrow, stage four of the Giro d'Italia. It's finally less than 200 kilometers. It's 175. However, that does not make it any easier. It starts in Venosa in Basilicata and it finishes in, as you mentioned, Lago La Cina, which is in Campania, the region where Naples is the capital in that region of Italy. It's a hilly stage with three categorized climb. The last one is, so it, Lago La Cina is a place. It's not the name of the climb, the, the climb, 9.6 kilometer climb. It's called Colle Molella with a 6.2 average. And then they have some quite steep ramps uh, in, up into double figures. But once the climb is done, it's a three kilometer uh, falls flat to uh, Lago La Cina. So should be a very interesting stage. It's, uh, we spoke about Remco, wanting to give up the jersey and I think tomorrow will be a it would be a good place to do it and he also he said today also when they when they quizzed him about it well I don't want to give away a jersey to someone who could potentially win the Giro so they have to they have to be quite observant of who actually goes into that breakaway tomorrow because it's bound to be a real breakaway stage I, think. I thought this all might happen today but I was very wrong wasn't I and I was embarrassingly wrong and it was quite embarrassing when I presented this scenario to Theo Gegenhart this morning. I said, oh, you know. We were discussing uh, it in the yeah, car. Yeah, and I think you'd influenced me. I think no. you talked about a big fight. You, you did. Off the well, record, you talked about yeah, a big fight. Go back and listen for the, to the, for the first yesterday. And then you, you talked about a very difficult first two hours. And this this convinced me that, okay, I could I could imagine a break going away and Remco seizing his opportunity to give away the pink jersey. But I was badly, badly wrong. However, tomorrow he will give away the pink jersey, won't he? Well, he, he could, he could. Yeah, I mean, he also. I think he also... He would want to give it away to someone that can also keep it uh, on the big stage, the big first big real mountain stage to Gran Sasso or Campo d'Imperatore. Because if he just gives it away for, for a day, it's, it, it's pretty worthless. So that has to be a, a rather strong rider who then again can't threaten him for the overall win. Or they'll just have to give it with such a big margin uh, that, that he'll, you know, he would not lose time and, and then the jersey. So that's not an. E- I mean, we all know the mathematics of all that, but it's that's easier said than done, because how can you control how many go into the breakaway? And there's other people who want to protect their own GC possibilities, or try and gain an advantage. So it should be a very interesting stage tomorrow, without a doubt. First time the Giro went to Lago Lacino in 1976, Roger de Vlaminck was the winner there. And I mentioned 1998, Alex Zula winning, Swiss rider. 2012, Domenico Pozzovivo, who was the local hero. He, he is from Basilicata, where the stage starts tomorrow. He won in 2012. There are actually two riders from Basilicata. And I believe, I've read the local press on this. I don't know whether this is, pro- whether this is Basilicata propaganda. But um, I believe this is the first time that two riders from Basilicata have ridden the Giro d'Italia. One of them is... Pozzo Vivo. The other one is Alessandro Verre of Arkea. Pozzo Vivo is the oldest rider in the race. Who was in the breakaway the other day? Yes. Pozzo Vivo is the oldest rider in the race. Verre is not the youngest, but he's very nearly the youngest. That reminds me, actually, we talked to the youngest rider in the race yesterday, uh, Matthew Ricitello, and I saw him, I'm just going to check now where he finished, I saw him when he came over the line, and if I'm not mistaken, he was in the front group, and he looked very good. Um, so well done to him. Brian, it's going to be the second big sort out of the Giro d'Italia tomorrow, isn't it? I'm very much looking forward to it. We're going to head off into Melfi to hopefully get a slightly more distinguished meal than the one we had 
last night. This is Melfi. <laughs> Melfi is one of these. There are a few communities in the south of Italy that are Arbresh communities. At a certain point in the past, there was uh, an Albanian settlement here, and Albanian or that. The Arbresh is a sort of derivative of Albanian, was spoken here. We stayed in one a few years ago called Civita in Calabria, where Albanian is still spoken. That's not the case in Melfi, but I think there are still some Arbresh influences here, which is very interesting. Um, Brian, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Aliano del Vulture. The yeah, that's, the, that's, the local, that's the local wine here. I actually had a glass here. of that uh, whilst you were working. If there, was a, there was a press buffet here. Quite quite a decent quite glass decent. of wine to pour in uh, in the in the media center here so try and see if we can sample some more of that very shortly we will brian and we'll be back brian we will be back after a little postcard from someone we didn't hear from yesterday another po- podcast host he's riding the giro d'italia making history the first p- cycling podcast host to ride the giro d'italia motown would love motown would love well they do motown does love lucky larry warbass here he is Um, I spoke to him after he'd crossed the line today in Melfi. La Renzando, a postcard from Italy with Larry Warbass. Well, Larry, three days in to your all-expenses-paid trip to Italy. Um, How's it going so far? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, weather was a bit iffy today. It was a bit cold at the bottom of the uh, climb there. And then, yeah, they were pretty full gas, so felt a bit average, but... uh, you know, that happens, so... Uh, Was I expected? Did you feel that coming this morning? Not really. I mean, it's not like I'm going for the GC, so it's not really a big big deal. Just, uh, yeah, I don't know, sometimes, you know, with the cold and stuff like that, uh, you never know how it goes, but, but yeah, it was fine. I mean, we had quite a few guys in the front, so so that's good for the team, and uh, yeah, so far, uh, not too bad here at the Giro. <laughs> well, it was quite a small group when they finally came into the finish there. It looked like um, Jayco and Trek set a pretty hot pace. Yeah, they set a hot pace on the climb. I mean, I didn't really see what happened after that, but uh, it felt hard in the peloton <laughs> until I wasn't in the peloton anymore. So, so yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was a fine day. Not really a whole lot. I didn't really see what else happened. I'll release you back into the wild in a second. Any, any cultural insights for us from your first three days in Italy since we last spoke? Well, I can say they have very average hotels, but uh, I already knew that. The uncertainty about the hotels in the second half of the race is a big topic of conversation among the teams and riders. I don't know if you've heard that. No, but I do know that uh, we don't have our list of hotels for halfway through the race. There you go. So, yeah, um, I guess that doesn't surprise me. But, uh, but yeah, I'm sure they'll... I'm sure I'll have a bed to sleep in, so I'm not too worried. (laughs) Viva il giro. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne.